Hello and welcome to episode 83 of the Nerd Culture Podcast, the greatest podcast in the world. My name is David, and with me are the NCP crew, Richo. The greatest podcaster in the world. Luke. You're wrong. You're not pointing at David. You are pointing at Richo. The greatest those, Luke in the world. For those of you who don't have the benefit of television. <laughs> and Crystal. And what world would that be? Our world. The greatest world. <laughs> the nerd culture world. <laughs> the greatest nerd culture world. Not one of those exoplanet worlds. <laughs> the greatest exoplanet world. I considered saying the greatest podcast, in Australia's greatest nerd culture podcast, but I thought that just limits us. Let's face it, we might as well just say we're the greatest podcast in the world ever. You're limiting the multiverse. Everyone in the world? What about the multiverse? Ooh, I like how Earth you think. Earth nerd. I like how you think. That's cool. And nerdy. Really nerdy. But well done. <laughs> <laughs> For this episode, we have a double dust jacket. You know, that's not, two, that's not two dust jackets around the one subject. A double D. Oh, that was a terrible joke. <laughs> a double D. That's awesome. I'm so glad you're the, the only girl on the, on the podcast is the one that made that joke. <laughs> Hilarious. Uh, the Double D episode. Um, you do realise you're the only one who laughed, right? Because I'm... Why well, I'm called Sleazy D. That oh. is true. But there's a reason I have that nickname, look. As you've found out on a number of occasions, mm. to your horror. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> so for this episode, we'll be reviewing the novels Game Slays by Gard Skinner, and then The Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. So take it away, Captain Dustjacket. Well, I'm actually not going to be Captain Dustjacket for this first review because um, we actually divvied up the books this time around because we were doing two reviews. Mm. So Game Slaves is actually yours, Dave, to review. So the Captain Dustjacket Exo Armor, because, you know, I've upgraded again. You upgraded again? Yeah, I've upgraded again. I've decided, you know, I, I ditched the shoulder pads and I've now gone for my no, I'm liquid keeping... Exo Armor. Uh, <laughs> There's I'm... only so, so much money in the budget. Here. I know. Where do you, where's this money coming from? Uh, well, you know, we have that Amazon widget. We have had some people buy some stuff off the Amazon widget, so thank you very much to whoever you are. Yes, yeah, right. you have supported my Exo Armor, so thank you very much. Great stuff. And how do you know I didn't create the Exo Armor myself? How do you know I'm not like a... Tony Stark, Reed Richards style genius. Because I know you, and I know that's not true. (laughs) You're like the dumb, dumb Dugan. (laughs) 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 Well, at least you can call me like Hulk, like dumb Green Hulk or something. (laughs) Could be worse. No, dumb dumb's not dumb. It's just his name. I just went for the double play. All right, fair point. The irony. Either way, Exoscoot is yours. I'll I'll take the Exoscoot, but I'm keeping the, uh, the, the pouches on the legs and stuff. All right, so you still want 90s Captain Dust Jacket. All right. Cool, so uh, Game Slayers, as I said, was, is written by uh, Mr. Gard Skinner, and uh, Gard contacted us and uh, asked us to take a look at his novel, and uh, so that's awesome. That is absolutely awesome. We love it when people do that. Uh, it has happened a couple of times now, and um, big fans of that sort of stuff. So thank you, Gard, for thinking of us um, and, and uh, giving us your baby to review. And I've got to say, I'm glad you did, because it's actually uh, quite an enjoyable book. Both Crystal and I are going to be going through this. I just want to start off with uh, the cover for the book itself. The cover, actually, in keeping with the the content of the book, which is about video games, uh, the cover has a very video game style sort of look look to it. It's very very cool. I actually thought um, it was a video game when you first showed it to me. I'm like, where's the book? Um, so it's it's uh, it's very striking artwork. So as I said, uh, the game the the book is about video games. It deals with 
uh, a group of NCPs, non-player characters, um, who exist in the video game world. Uh, it's it's um, the main character is Phoenix, and uh, he's his team is basically called Team Phoenix. And uh, what, what these what these guys do is they they sort of live in an environment where uh, it's basically it's kind of like a military in installation, and so they take on the role of the bad guy in whatever game that you may be playing. So it, it so it personifies the nameless, personalityless uh, characters that you, as the player character, get to blow away in every game that you're in. Um, and uh, so right off the bat, I was automatically uh, fascinated. Later on, as the, as the novel progresses, it introduces uh, some some more sort of science fiction elements, um, which are quite uh, Matrix-like. Uh, but off the bat, it sort of, for me started off as sort of a Wreck-It Ralph sort of deal. So video game characters as real people. So eventually, it becomes it eventually becomes what if Wreck-It Ralph met the Matrix? Um, and for me, that's awesome. <laughs> so you've already got my two 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 interests already covered. The main, the main characters, Team Phoenix, uh, are going along uh, quite well until they get a new recruit. Uh, so every now and again, one of the, one of the characters uh, will just disappear, and the, they don't really think too much about it. It's, uh, I don't know if it's because of their programming or whatever the case may be, but they're kind of like, yeah, you know, this happens. And this life's not for everybody. But they get a new recruit named Dakota, um, and uh, she starts to shake up the system. Um, so the the characters are, are very well treated. I mean, basically, whenever they're not actually working, so whenever they're not on shift, all their needs are, ta are taken care of. It's uh, they don't have to basically buy, buy anything. It's all all supplied, food, lodging, that sort of stuff. Uh, Phoenix is uh, he doesn't say it at the start, but he's in love with his uh, he's one of his teammates, uh, me, um, who's the only, only other female on the team, and um, he's very protective towards her. And so he's he's happy. Phoenix is actually he's genuinely happy with his lot, and uh, until Dakota comes along and, and basically messes it up, and she does it in a, in a really cool scene where, uh, I mean, as NP NPCs and and they're generally most of the time portrayed as the bad guys, it's their job to try and kill uh, you, the player, and they're the best at what they do. They're very Wolverine about they're like that. They they are the best team available, and they will go out of their way to win. Not because they don't like the players; they love the players. It's just more the ones that they just really want to win, and and they're good at what they do. Uh, but there is one uh, one scenario where um, where they fight, where they're firing back, like they're being fired upon, and they fire back. And uh, Dakota has this crazy, this crazy idea that instead of actually firing, fighting, you know, she has sort of a let's give peace a chance moment and sort of and stands up and tries to talk to the player character and and discuss like why are we fighting why can't we just sort of sit down and have a cup of tea sort of stuff and <laughs> and phoenix is just blown away by this he's just like this is unheard of <laughs> and uh and you eventually find out later on the story just how unheard of and how crazy that sort of scenario was and dakota's very unhappy with her lot and um she not only does she have sort of these crazy ideas about why do we do this sort of stuff uh, but she also has um, memories. She, she's having memory flashes. And uh, I can't remember if it's specifically stated in the book whether their minds are wiped or something like that. But unlike, yeah, unlike, unlike the, other, the others, they have no memories of their childhoods or anything like that. They're just, they, they exist in the time that they are because they're programmed. There's no delusions about it. Phoenix knows he's a program. When they get blown up, they, uh, they come back through the... the what's he call it the recon yeah the, re the reconstituter or something yeah, so it has a very it has a very tron like element to it which is awesome as well so it's, it's, which it's, physically it's, puts them back together yeah so it physically puts them together in a brand new you know spanking body 
But Dakota, on the other hand, is having what she believes are memories of her childhood and uh, memories that just don't make sense. And uh, there's this, there's no real reason to have these memories programmed into her. And so they, they generally they start to believe that those memories are in fact real. In keeping of, of sort of the non-spoilery sort of aspect of it, I, that's basically as far into the story as I want to go. So like, like I said, it does it starts off with a Wreck-It Ralph Tron sort of element to it. Um, and then introduces uh, a matrix type element to it, and that's about as, as much as I want to say, to be honest with you, um, because I really, I really like this book, and I really, I really want uh, Rotley to check it out and sort of give it a go. And um, it wouldn't be too much of a spoiler to sort of go or go on from there, but I basically, I just, I really just don't want to. I just don't think it's we, we should. Yeah, I don't, I don't think there's a need to. Yeah. So, um, I mean, but I guess, I mean, if you're familiar with those sort of worlds, those sort of universes, you'll have a general idea of what I'm talking about. Even yep. if you're not familiar with it, it's it's not hard to follow. The only thing I would, because like coming from a non-gamer perspective, the only thing I would suggest is put what NPC stands for. I mean, it's obvious. I I know what it is, but it, it's not. Um, you know. Oh, I see what you're saying. Like a, yeah. like a glossary almost? Or? Yeah, okay, okay. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a fair point. Well, they have a, he has a little thing at the start of the characters. but um, it's Yeah, there's, it's a, there's, a bit, there's a bit at the start which I, which I thought was awesome. It's, <laughs> it's assumed that uh, anyone who reads it is, or, is a gamer. And I suppose anyone who goes through it probably would be a mm. gamer because that's the type of audience it's going to attract. But, yeah, it's not that I didn't know what that was. It's just I didn't know what the actual letters stood for. Yeah, I, yeah that's, a, that's a fair point. Um, so yeah, so it is. So it, it is a definitely a benefit if you are a gamer to read this. Um, and I do need to point out that it is actually a young adult novel. Um, it I, reads yeah. like a young adult novel. Yeah, I, I, I did do a bit of research about uh, a while ago about this in preparation, but now I think I might have forgotten some of it. But it's I'm pretty sure Guard himself is a teacher, a high school teacher. I think I could be wrong, um, and that he wrote it. Uh, in response to a discussion they were having about virtual realities and um, artificial intelligence, I could be wrong. I'm pretty sure that is the case. Um, which is yeah, which is which fascinates fascinates uh, Guy himself, and um, and uh, then led to this novel. And it does have very much elements of that. It's like what does it mean? What does it mean to be real? The novel itself is in sort of is basically in two halves. It's and uh, the first half is essentially what does it mean to be. Uh, a, a person and, and to sort of have you know feelings and emotions and then the second half goes on to what it does which like I said I don't want to talk about as a as a gamer um, yeah I, I agree with Crystal it's, it's if you are a gamer you will definitely get a, a lot more out of this um, it's for me it was very much I'm a big uh, as as the listeners will know I'm a big fan of Easter eggs and uh, stuff like that and he never uh, because he doesn't want to get sued I assume doesn't mention games uh, actual real world games. Um, except for like really old, you know, games like Pac-Man and stuff. Um, but in the real, the 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 current sort of crop of games that he mentions, he sort of alludes to and sort of gives them slightly different names and stuff, which I thought was awesome. So I, I really love those sort of you know picking up those sort of nuggets and stuff. I mean, just just to name a few, he mentions a uh, uh, Gears of War, uh, Call of Duty series, Halo. Uh, so there's a lot of sort of first-person shooter type stuff in there, and the bios that Crystal mentioned, which are cool uh, at the start, have a very much of a sort of a Gears of War sort of aspect of it. It's like you know how many hits and they've got, how many kills, confirmed kills, accuracy, that sort of stuff. Um, so as a as a gamer, I, I really really got into it right from the outset. I was really drawn into it, and then as a as a fan of science fiction, I was then sort of drawn into it even further in in the terms of of the questions that they sort of that, that Phoenix himself starts to ask. You know, based on what Dakota is saying and what and what she believes. Yeah, having said that, you don't let that having to be a gamer put you off. It's a, 
I still got into it not being a gamer at all. Um, it's probably not a novel I would have picked up on my own without having to read it for the podcast, but I found the lead character, Phoenix, while he wasn't a, a really in-depth character, he was an endearing character, and he's the one that narrates the book, and he, uh, he it's like he's sort of talking to an old friend the way the way it's written so it does kind of it draws you in I, I wasn't surprised by any of the directions that the book took I, I sort of figured out what was going on early on however without spoiling it I did enjoy the way it ended uh, and it did take a direction that I wasn't quite expecting right at the end so that picked it up for me right towards the end um, some of the battle scenes did draw on a bit for me but that's always my gripe that's <laughs> nothing cool. not, not against the book for the story it is it was it was well written and well told i, I don't think at any point uh there was anything i would cut or anything i would add yeah i mean it's, I, I i do agree with you that it's 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 not it's super in depth um and it's it, it is it, but it, it doesn't even pretend to be yeah but that's right it, that's exactly it doesn't it doesn't it's, i mean it's not an agatha christie novel so i mean there is there is a, a bit of a mystery to it um and it's pretty easy to figure it out but I, I think that's more just because we're just you know seasoned readers i suppose it's more about exploring concepts and uh, yeah you can say it without spoiling it it's more about it's a bit like total recall and exploring what is reality mm-hmm. yeah that's exactly right and and i think that's that's what it does really well i mean i, I guess in in terms of any negatives i would have had would have been a little bit more characterization would have been good. I mean, I, I quite like. I, d- I don't know about that because I like that that because they're in NPCs. That that I think the lack of characterization adds to it because yeah. NPCs would not have a great deal of depth of character, no, and that's what they that's what they believe that they are from the start. But then you find out later on other things, and so so more characterization at that point. Okay. Yeah, I remember that might have helped a little i'm not saying a terrible much i mean i, I mean i agree i agree with you with what you're saying about phoenix i mean he's mm-hmm. the main character and and uh, and you get to know him more than you do the others mm-hmm. and he's and he's ta- he's telling this story in hindsight so he's perfectly adequate for what he does but maybe a, just a little bit a bit more would have been would have been good that being said that's my only negative actually i think this is very well written i think this is a very interesting it moves at a great clip I mean, it moves, it moves at a young adult pace, and I'm a child at heart, so I like it. it just, I mean, it doesn't. There's no flab. I mean, everything you know, makes sense. It's it, it's very very well done, and it's and it was it's refreshing for me to read a, a young adult novel that's not terrible. Because <laughs> I mean, I've been you know in 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 the in our our reviewing sort of thing. I mean, I I don't like to review things that I haven't actually either seen or read, and so you know we've mentioned in the past how I've, I've subjected myself to Twilight and you know various other books of that ilk. And God, I'm so happy that this is not terrible like they say. You know what I mean? I mean, this is actually really enjoyable. Yeah, I'd give it a strong three and a half looks. Yeah, and I'll, I'll actually even go higher than that. I actually go with four looks. Um, it's it it was uh, quite enjoyable stuff, and a huge thanks uh, to Guard uh, for bringing this book to our attention. So um, check it out. It's uh, it's available through uh, Blackstar, I believe it's Blackstar Publishing. Um, so uh, it's it's you know it's on the shelves. I've, Check it out. If you like good books, it's for you. So that's uh, that was Game Slaves by Guard Skinner. Next up we have The Earth Abides by George R. Stewart. D. 
The Earth Abides is a 1948 post-apocalyptic novel. Uh, it tells the story of Isherwood Williams, known as Ish to just about everybody in the book, who is a geologist who at the beginning of the book is in a cavern alone and he gets bitten by a rattlesnake and goes into a state of delirium because of that. When he recovers from the snake bite, he returns to civilization only to find out that 99% of um, civilization has actually been wiped out by um, a particularly deadly and particularly thorough virus that uh, seems to have cleaned out the population at an alarmingly fast rate. Man flu. Pretty much. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Except it was bad for everyone. (laughs) Man flu is bad for everyone. (laughs) Wow! Bazing! (laughs) Oh, failure of the day. Ish follows a a fairly standard pattern that you see in uh, post-apocalyptic novels to begin with. His first reaction is to um, travel somewhere familiar. He returns to the house that he's lived in with his parents. But when he finds nobody there, um, he then decides to explore the world, see what's happened, how just how thorough has the destruction been. And he actually travels uh, from his home in San Francisco. Uh, basically, from coast to coast, he travels to New York. And what he discovers is that the destruction is almost complete. Like he finds only small, small individuals or, or pairs of survivors early on in, in the novel. Um, and so he makes the decision then to return back to San Francisco. So really the first act of the book is that period of exploration. Mm. But the book sort of, look, that, that part of the book is is interesting from a rather detached view. And, and Ish is actually a fairly detached observer. He actually likes his isolation. Um, he's a bit like um, Luke in that regard. Um, <laughs> he's a very Luke-like character. He, he, like, doesn't, he doesn't seem that worried, does he? Yeah. No, no, he's I mean, actually... Ish, not Luke. Uh, early oh, on, I'm not that worried either, so... <laughs> yeah, early on, Ish is... Um, yeah, he actually doesn't seem to mind the isolation. And um, I mean, It's not quite to the extent as the, as the guy in the Twilight Zone episode really wants to do his read books. He's like, that's like, true. It's like, like, thank God, I'm going to read my books. Uh, but he still doesn't seem that concerned. No, not at all. Not at all. Um, and then um, when he does actually return, we, we move into the sort of towards the second act of the book where he um, starts looking for survivors to form a community. Um, what is interesting about this is that unlike most survivalist novels where you just go looking for anybody, Ish is actually very particular about the people that he gathers. He, He's smart um, about it, that's what it is. He, yeah, he actually, he rejects numerous people uh, throughout the book, actually. It's um, <laughs> just not suitable people to associate with, really. Um, he's actually quite elitist in that regard, a lot like Luke. Um, <laughs> um, so, look, are you going to play Ish in a stage, stage version of uh, Earth Flight? Why only a stage version? <laughs> we, can't, we can't afford to make a film. That requires Luke to leave the house. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> hey, um, I can improvise. <laughs> so, uh, eventually Ish uh, meets Emma, and he does actually fall in love with her, and um, they start the beginnings of, the, of a new civilization, and they gather a small group of people uh, to them, and start breeding. Yeah, so they, they gather the, they gather a small group of survivors to them. Most prominently is Ezra, and Ezra is the people person. He's the one that um, sort of they use to judge right and wrong people, really, because that's what Ezra does. Ezra knows people, and he, he knows how to bring people together. So they form the basis of a community. 
in this in the second act, and they start having children, and 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 good and bad things happen in relation to that. Um, at first, they're fairly comfortable. There's a wealth of uh, food available to them in cans from uh, stores because, as I said, 99% of the population are wiped out, so the stores are available. Resources are there. Um, at, at first, electricity and water are still running on um, basically automated hydroelectric systems. But slowly but surely, these systems start to deteriorate and they start to have to deal with new problems that arise because of that. Of course, the the part of breeding and creating new generations of children becomes an issue for them as well. But Ish remains really concerned about restoring civilization. Like, he's a bit of a warrior and he acknowledges that himself. Um, and by this stage, he's moved away from being sort of more of the isolationist personality. Um, and he's really starting to worry about everything, but he just cannot seem to get things to work. He cannot seem to get people behind his ideas. And, and the, the people that he's with are complacent really they're they're happy to just live life as it is they don't really foresee it as getting any better for them you know the world's true but they're also not they're they're also not thinkers they're not big ideas people they're just yeah they're people that sort of fall into this comfort zone and are are happy with that as the book progresses we actually move through multiple generations of children being born and you know as, as with all survivalist novels you know a range of issues present themselves um in the third act of the book they um actually start to integrate with another group of people as well to sort of top up the gene pool and bring new skills in but um what what ish finds is that his efforts to bring civilization back fail the new generations of children who don't actually know anything different from the life that they're born into um they start to develop their own superstitions specifically about a hammer that Ish has. Um, Ish takes a hammer from the cabin right at the start of the book, um, which he uses to, you know, numerous times to break into places and to, you know, fend off potential threats and the things like style. that. Absolutely. Because he's always carrying this hammer and he, when, when he settles down, he gives it a place on the mantelpiece. The children start to see it as um, almost like a magical artifact. It's the symbol of power for um, the, the, the group that, um, that they're born into, which is called the tribe. And he tries to fight against that, and he can't. Um, he struggles to try and um, get the people thinking about new ideas and reading books, and, and, and that fails for him. Yeah. Um, he's, res- he's respected, but essentially ignored. Yeah. Um, I mean, he's still seen, especially in the earlier parts of, of um, the tribe's existence, he's seen as the leader of the tribe. Mm. But at the same time, the tribe are happy with the way that life is. Yeah. So they become um, hunter-gatherers. Yeah. And we sort of then, from there, we sort of progressed um, through to really the end of Isha's life. For me, there, there are a couple of negatives for the book. Uh, the first is, it is in many respects uh, mired in the belief system of its time. Mm-hmm. Um, insofar as, you know, there is men's work and women's work and men do men do the hunting and gathering and women do the childbearing. And, all that, that's um, the way it should be. Having said that... <laughs> Having said that... It's something a bit harder there. Tissue's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not going to actually prove your I point. Wasn't, I wasn't too concerned. It was used, though. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. No, <laughs> keep it away from me. Keep it away. <laughs> it, does in, it does, in some respects, however, subvert some of those standards as well, especially in the discovery that Isha's wife, Emma, is actually a black woman um, with a black heritage. She's half black. Yeah. Mm. Which at the time meant that you were considered Unbelievable. black. Yeah. You were considered black. Right. If you were half black, quarter black, you were, you were, you were considered tainted in some way. Exactly. Exactly. Um, 
So in, in some respects, it, it does suit those standards of, of, of the late 40s and early 50s. Mm. In some cases, it subverts them. Um, the lack of religion, mm. I think, mm. is another interesting one in that regard. Um, and the half-hearted attempts to bring religion into the tribe. Mm. The other thing I would say about the book is that it really actually doesn't start. I think the story doesn't mm. really get going until the actual creation of the tribe. Yeah. The first hundred pages or so of the book where um, it's just, just exploring the world is kind of interesting um, insofar as this is the way the world is. Mm. But really, it's it's the tribe and what the tribe goes through and what Ish goes through in trying to motivate the tribe is really where the where the story That's, actually begins to occur. Well, so that, it takes a long time to get there. If you're just going by the first, say, 7,500 pages... In which it does read like it's a, a last man on earth type yeah. novel in the vein of things like the Omega of um, uh, I Am Legend or things of like that ilk, without you know the mutant humanity. It sort of does read like that, but this, given that the bulk of the story is actually about how do you hold on to the elements of civilization mm-hmm. um, when it's crumbling all around you, um, and how do you kickstart civilization again mm-hmm. or kickstart civilization as you think it should be. Yeah. Um, yeah, but it also it all touches on exactly what is civilization. Mm. Like, issues yeah. very much civilization was what I know mm. and yeah. existed before the event. Mm. Whereas the children now very much well, this is now civilization. Exactly, this is yeah. all the civilization we need. And that's, yeah. that, it's almost a you, you could point you could say that in the end, Ish fails not because of his attempts, but fails because he misunderstands just how civilization actually does work. Which mm. is yeah. generation new, new generations when they do rise up actually interpret in their own way and do new th- and different things, things that he's not going to yeah. anticipate there or is, expect. There, there is an excellent scene, I think, in the book where he does actually come to that realisation yeah. and he starts to think, well, what what can I give back to the tribe? Like, mm. what, what can I give to the tribe that later generations can, can act, will, will actually benefit from? Mm. Um, because he's failed so often. Mm. Um, and he creates a bow and arrow. Mm. But he sells it to the children as a game. Mm. He says, you know, I'm creating a new game. Here's the game. Go and play. Mm. Right? But in doing so, he does actually teach them the skill of hunting with a bow and arrow. And you do see later on in the story, you see how that comes to play out. But it's it's that realisation that I can't stick to the old ways of teaching and the old ways of civilization. I've got to introduce this to the children in a way that they can understand. Mm. And to me, that, 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 that sort of look at anthropology and sociology... Mm is probably the strongest aspect of the book. As, as uh, David said, what is civilization? How does civilization work? Um, also, like, there's almost a, a real-world science approach to um, the collapse of everything. Mm. You know, there, there are sections of the book where um, Isherwood's first-person narrative are uh, disrupted by... Well, not disrupted, but are broken up by italic sections mm. that deal with, you know, what's happening with... The, the wildlife, what's happening, yeah, with the flora and fauna, how roads are breaking down, how dams are breaking down, um, you know, how long certain things will survive um, mm. without humanity's interference. Um, so, yeah, so it's, it's, it's also looking at the, the wider picture of, of what actually happens to a world when humanity is effectively taken out of it. So the interesting thing about those italicised uh, those sections is that it's, you, you think it's either, you know, chunk, chunk from a standard, you know, textbook or something. Yeah, it's been cut and paste from a scientific journal or something. Yeah, that's been, mm. that's been popped in to, you know, give, uh, you know, uh, some substance to what's actually going on. 
but then slowly it gets revealed that someone is actually writing. Someone in the book is actually writing all this stuff. Yeah, as as it goes along, you you start to see that. Um, well, really, it, it starts to reflect a lot. Yeah, and it starts to reflect a lot of what what Ish is actually experiencing mm. as well. Yeah, and almost in his in his clinical mind, because I, I always assumed it was Ish himself. Mm. That in his clinical mind, he is looking for actual, I guess, research evidence to back up what he is personally experiencing. Also, the impact on ecology as well. As yeah, just talked about as well, and he tries to be as thorough as he possibly can. One of the um, the section early on on how what would actually happen to say the rats, mm. um, in which the standard cliched thing is that the rats will take over and you know infestation and disease will run rife and. Um, things like that, and he says, "Well, hang on, no. The rats depend. Rats' survival depends on man's food storage capabilities. And once they get depleted, then the rats will actually start to turn on themselves and start eating each other. Yeah, and they also get start. They start getting hunted by the pets, pets. The former pets, mm. because now mm. the owners are not there to control mm. them anymore, and mm. so yeah. they revert back to mm. you know yeah. their sort of feral which, natures. Which is very much where that hard science aspect of yep. the story mm. comes into play. Um, but that does sort of lead me to my big." gripe with the, book, with the book, which is that it's all fascinating, don't get me wrong, I was interested in reading about the rats and the the progression of humanity, but I wanted a bit of drama. Hmm. I actually didn't finish the book, I got to about 200 pages and started to read other stuff. Was that before Charlie shows up? Yeah. Yeah. So you finished before Charlie arrives? Yeah. Which, who's the drama? Well, Char- Charlie's Charlie's a huge turning point in, yeah. the, in the story. That's and that's, and that's okay, th- and you just said that, that means my group, because this gets back to storytelling. Yeah. Um, you want to introduce the the dramatic point much earlier on. Oh yeah, Charlie should have shown up. Much um, but not only that, he, I think he should have got. I think um, Ish should have met M a lot earlier than he did. I think there's too much of him wandering around yeah. the um, the the barren wasteland. You can do that in a lot less pages mm. and have the point come across. After a while, it just does it comes across like you know you're beating me over the head with a two by four. Um, yeah, I'm with you. Most most of the mm. the start is it's interesting. It's interesting, but it's too, it, it's too much, and it gets in the way of getting on with things. I kind of picture the first hundred pages as like a Disney documentary. Remember those Disney documentaries from our childhood, yeah. where mm. you really didn't learn all that much. It wasn't like yeah. David, Ad, you know, Richard, well, that, it wasn't Attenborough level of, of, of information. Right, the first time. But, but it had sort of like so it had like nice pretty pictures, mm. and then it'll have this sort of this in, this sort of info dump voiceover. Which you didn't care about, mm. and then you go back to the pretty pictures again, yeah. and it just seemed to just go on. Yeah, yeah. Look, it, it definitely, and even even the the interesting observations, as I said, the these eco- ecological observations really aren't all that interesting to begin with, anyway. Mm. Um, because it's not until once again, until he's actually settled back in San Francisco, and he starts talking about things like the rats and the the reemergence of wildlife uh, into in, in certain areas, and and the fires as well. Um, the constant burning fires because there's no one to, to put them out and there's no one to create the breaks anymore. Mm. Once again, all of that stuff is more interesting when he's settled because mm. once again, it's it's starting to pose an actual threat right. to him. I do agree though with uh, what Luke was saying. There is a very much a lack of real drama and certainly threat to the mm. main character, especially early on. And really, major threat doesn't come to him until the arrival of Charlie. And I think the, the sequence where Charlie actually arrives and is actually, I think, the most interesting moment in the book. And a little bit more of that, I think, would have been, um, I think, better for the overall drama of the book. Mm. Because there isn't, there isn't a huge amount of threat to these people. Mm. You know, humanity's been wiped out. You know, so you don't have 
zombies or vampires that constantly torment you or mutants or, uh, you know, a spreading plague or, you know, even rats. <laughs> well, there's <laughs> not even much conflict within the group itself. True, but then that's also because of, um, I think, because of Isha's choices. I mean, he does... He is very, very specific. In, in fact, quite quite elitist in uh, the choices. Mm. But then once again, when Charlie comes in, there's actually multiple threats posed. Mm. But it was it was still, for me, there was still a satisfying conclusion. But look, I, I chose this book for a couple of reasons. First of all, because I just love post-apocalyptic stories. Mm. Absolutely love them. Because, because I think they present a really interesting picture of human nature. It, it's, it's good for us to be able to say you know, in the comfort of our own homes that we would act a certain way or that we would be a certain way. But what I find fascinating with these books is that, well, really, would we be that way? Like, if we, if the world suddenly ended, like if suddenly most of the population was wiped out, how would I react? What would I do? And we all have a certain perception of ourselves. Walk around with my pants off. That's well, that's because you're the sleeves. <laughs> um, so I'm, I'm fascinated by post-apocalyptic books because I'm fascinated by the different psychologies of the characters and how yeah. they would react to what is really the most extreme situation. Yeah. Um, I guess uh, for me, how I'd react would depend on how it happened. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Because there were zombies. You know, I've got my plan already in place. <laughs> if it's you know some sort of pathogen of some sort, then I'd be scared to leave the house. Because <laughs> why else did I survive? Mm. Yeah, it really, it really yeah. depends on the situation. Yeah, and um, so yeah, this this was a solid entry into um, into post apocalyptic uh, novels. Certainly not close to being one of my favourites, but it was an interesting read. Is the best way I think I would describe it, and I'd give it uh, three looks. Yeah, that sounds about. Right to me. Didn't hate reading it, but got to page 200 and didn't really feel compelled to read on. Not uh, It's not a terrible book. My only stretch of the imagination, there are some interesting elements to it, um, but uh, dramatically very unsatisfying. So I, I give it three looks as well. Yeah, I, I basically agree with everything Richard said. I, just, I mean, I did I did finish it, uh, and I'm glad I did, because eventually, you know, we got to Charlie and stuff. And, yeah, Charlie definitely should have been introduced earlier. My favourite character is actually M, mm. Um, mm. because I just think she's awesome. The, the mother of nations, like Richard said, is very much of its time. And I'd also give it three out of five looks. It's an, it's an important entry in that genre. Yeah, and, uh, yeah. You know, and it's... Um, it very, very much lay, lays the, the path for later apocalypse-type yeah, novels. Yeah. I, I, saw, I, saw, and, I saw a sort of an element of of the road hmm. in it as well yeah. and uh, yeah. and I, I think about it's, it. and, uh, it's, it's also uh, Stephen King has cited it as a, a major influence on The Stand yeah um, and, and you can see that because yeah. you know the first hundred pages of The Stand yeah. we just throw that out <laughs> and I think I think it's important too that it is coming sort of post-war it's one of the earliest entries post-war into this subgenre. Okay, cool. Uh, we'd like to uh, mention the next book that we're going to do uh, so that our listeners can uh, have a read of it and so, so know what we're talking about during the reviews. Um, our next Dust, dust Jacket will be April 13th, and we're going to be covering Reemdy by Neil Stevenson. So there you have it. You've got a, you've got a month to read a 2,000-page uh, book. It's a big one. Ever it's, heard it's, about that? It's, it's quite, uh, quite dense. Yes, uh, that, that, that Neil Stevenson, you know, you know, for some strange reason, if it's not over 500 pages, it's just not a book. <laughs> well, he doesn't write Mr. He doesn't write Mr. Men books. Let's just say that. <laughs> there's, there's, there's a lot of words in there. I'd be quite interested to read his Mr. Men book. <laughs> it, it would be quite interesting. <laughs> 
Mr. Mathematics. <laughs> yeah, so uh, so check it out. So that'll be episode 87, April 13th. So can't wait for that one. Okay, so coming up next, coming soon. Coming soon in Australian cinemas, March 27, we get Noah, Mr. Peabody and Sherman, and yet another Romeo and Juliet. Seems to just they make another Romeo and Juliet every generation. It's weird. Yeah, some people think, you know, blame it on the uh, illusion that it's a good story. It's half a good story, and then Mercutio dies. <laughs> it does kind of fall and down as soon as Mercutio dies. Hey, hey, the end of the story is. is Impressive. It's classic. It the is. End of it, yeah, the end of, yeah, but then there's that um, that that whole middle period where basically Romeo's you know done nothing but pout. I can't be with Juliet. I'm my best friends at all. So that, uh, that, that, that I defy you. That Shakespeare. He sucks. <laughs> Actually, I would not be shocked in this current uh, PC obsessed age that we currently live in that uh, Romeo and Juliet starts to get a disclaimer like. It, you know, you know, kids. It's suicide. It's not good. You know, it's something like that. Yeah. Don't don't kill yourself because you, because you, the person you think you love is dead. I'm, I would not be surprised. I am kind suicide, of suicide. Don't do it. <laughs> I am kind of interested in uh, Noah, yeah. mainly because of Darren Aronofsky, who I just think is a fantastic director. So I'd be interested to see what he actually does with uh, the classic tale. <laughs> Hopefully, it gives us something a little bit interesting and different to yeah, the I don't know how you're going to get two hours out of that story. I mean, it's pretty basic stuff. So, uh, I don't know. One hour of rain? <laughs> I'm, I'm interested. If, and if, it would have been a pain in the butt to film it with all that rain. Yeah. If James Cameron can turn Titanic, which is effectively just about a boat that sinks, <laughs> into a three hour snoo- snooze fest, to be perfectly honest. Um, <laughs> I oh, Titanic, thank you very much. Uh, this, uh, this coming through <laughs> section is actually going to just be Luke picking on everything. <laughs> what, about, what about Mr. Peabody and Sherman? Do you have any emotional attachment to that? Couldn't care less. Couldn't no, care no. less. Um, yeah. I didn't mind them in the Rocky and Bullwinkle show, but let's face it. Do they need their own film? Yeah. No. <laughs> awesome. Peabody's not that interesting. I mean, and also, just, go, just on this, the whole point of Mr. Peabody and Sherman was him going back and travelling in time, right? Yeah. Yes. And meeting famous people. That was the whole impetus of the story. Yes. So why are all the historical characters supporting cast? Why is it so focused on um, Sherman's little love interest with this other girl? I don't know. I think you're reading too much into it. Sorry, I'm just going to take Luke's soapbox away from him now, everybody. He's had his moment. He's had his moment to shine. I'll just build another one. And what was the last one there? Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, you've already you've already teed off on that one. I'm perfectly willing to tee off on Romeo and Juliet (laughs) even more. Just out of curiosity, which who's in this? Like, what is this Romeo and Juliet? No clue. I have no idea. Right. Okay. Uh, It's um, written by Julian Fellows, who does um, who wrote Gosford Park and uh, Downton Abbey. I thought it was written by Shakespeare. It's adapted by (laughs) Julian Fellows. Um, Actually, I think it was written by Marlowe. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you're going there, are you? <laughs> no, 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 no. See, Shakespeare never existed. Oh, See, right. It was Kit Marlowe writing to someone else. Gotcha. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> Marlowe, I think, was dead by the time Romeo and Juliet. No, no, he was, he was always seen to be dead. No one actually witnessed the murder. Yeah, but the body was there and they found him. <laughs> it's not like he disappeared and no one ever found the body. He was killed in the bar fight. <laughs> and the body was then taken and buried. It was a fake body. Fake body. See what you don't get. It was about a clone. Those, what do I get about those Elizabethan spies <laughs> and spy masters? Right, is that they all went to John D. 
got him to knock up a clay a clay version of Right. Yeah, like a, well, a mushroom thing, like that, like uh, a, a homunculi. Yeah, a homunculi, a homunculi that didn't come to life and kill everyone. Right, that's a cool idea for a film. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, unfortunately, okay. the theory is based on fairly flimsy evidence. But I do like it just because it's a cool. Flimsy story. evidence is the backbone of any good conspiracy theory, and I should know that better than anybody. <laughs> awesome! That was an awesome episode. Thank you, Rush, for everybody. That's uh, it from me. And the crew, Richard. The Richard abides. Luke. You abide with what? With the Earth. The Earth and I abiding together. And it's Crystal. Amazing. That's very undoed. <laughs> <laughs> I'm never undoed, I can assure you of that. Bye. Bye, everybody. <laughs>